The New Testament reading comes from the gospel according to John. We're going to be reading John chapter 2, verse 23, through John 3, verse 21. You know this section of Scripture, because this is the section of Scripture in which we hear the wonderful football stadium verse, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So hear the Word of God. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit." Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man." And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light 
lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. With that, let's do pray together and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, in these last few weeks, we've been reminded again of how blessed we've been. You have taken from us, Harry Reader. You've taken from us, Tim Keller. You took them home to glory. Oh, Father, we thank you for these men. We thank you for R.C. and for the difference he made worldwide. We thank you for how you filled him because, Father, this was something you did. We don't sing to the glory of R.C. We sing to the glory of the God that made him, the God that filled him. God that called him to preach and teach. We bow before you now as your priests. We thank you for how you have blessed this week and these last few months in the life of Phil Halley. Thank you for his improvement. And Father, we pray that this improvement will just keep happening, that your grace will just pour out continually on that man and on Sally. We look forward to the day that he will join us here. Oh, bring that to be, Father. We pray for Eileen Wood. Pray that you would continue to bring healing to her. Bless Dan as he cares for her. Father, thank you. And now as we open your word, we say it every week, Father, but our lives depend on it. John Sartell cannot teach us so that it will make any difference in our lives. But we don't despair because the Father does teach us. You do teach us, Father, in the power of your Spirit. You teach us in a way that does change us in the very core of our being. For some of us, that means that we continue to grow in Christ and in your word. For some of us this morning, it might mean that it's a change for the first time. Oh, Father, we pray that we will hear your voice in our hearts in these next few minutes. Speak to us, Father. Teach us. Help us to understand as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you want to have a conversation with Jesus, really. Jesus had come to Jerusalem soon after beginning his ministry in Galilee. He had come to Jerusalem for the greatest feast of the Jewish year, the Feast of Passover. What a celebration. We saw last week that Jesus went to the temple. He was appalled and incensed that the secular market had been set up inside the actual temple. 
He was appalled that the sacrificial animals were being sold by the profiteers inside the temple. The money changers were there to handle the temple tax. That was taking place inside the temple. He made a whip. Think about that. Jesus made a whip and he drove those sacrificial animals out of the temple. He drove the profiteers out. He drove the money changers out. Tables were turned. We saw that this was not an anomaly. We're we tempted to say, well, that, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That sounded, we looked at Scripture and we, we saw that it sounded exactly like Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. However, chapter 2 of John does not end there. There are three strange verses, verses 23 and through 25, that seem to come out of nowhere. They seem to come out of nowhere because they're not connected with what Jesus did in the temple. Not at all. With these verses, John was not drawing a conclusion to the story of what happened in the temple. Rather, he was introducing one of the most famous conversations that's recorded in Scripture. He was actually introducing Jesus' conversation to Nicodemus. To understand this, we must know that the chapter and verse, the chapters and verses that we see in our Bibles today, that that mark the divisions in the different books, mark the division in different chapters and the different verses, they weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit. The chapters and verses that are in our Bibles were added in the 13th century to help scholars and readers of scriptures to better reference and organize their studies. This was, a, this was a wonderful blessing. The Gospel of John is divided into 21 chapters in our Bibles. Well, John did not divide his Gospel into 21 chapters. When John was writing the Gospel, he did not complete chapter 1 and say, okay, now that's chapter 1, let's move on to chapter 2. He simply began a new paragraph. The editors who developed this system of chapters and verses did us a great favor. But we must remember that Scripture itself is inspired and inerrant. The chapter and verse divisions are not. I say this because the last three verses of chapter 2 really should have been the beginning of chapter 3. These verses are an introduction to this renowned conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Let's look at them. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. We saw last week that when Jesus exerted his authority in the temple, he took over. He was saying, this is my father's house. This is my house. He was claiming the temple to be his own. 
Well, while he was in Jerusalem, after that, he must have given other signs because what we read there is that many believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. So what would that have, what would have happened? Some people would have said, wow, and wanted to join him. Others would, that had their own causes, would have said, well, we want him to be a part of what we're doing. But John states that Jesus did not commit himself to anyone. He knew what was inside of all of them. He did not any, need anyone to tell him who they were. He knew who they were and what they were thinking. Now look at the end of verse 25. For he himself knew what was in man. Now look at the very next sentence John writes. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. In the conversation that follows, it's obvious that Jesus knew all about Nicodemus. Jesus knew what was inside of a man. And then he says, for instance, there was a man named Nicodemus. That's how you should look at this. Do you know how dangerous it is? Here comes Nicodemus, and he wants a conversation with Jesus. Do you know how dangerous that is? To speak with a person who you who knows what's in your heart, who knows what's in your mind before you say anything. In the next chapter, in chapter 4 of John, Jesus has a conversation with a woman from Samaria. She runs home to tell her neighbors. She believes he's Messiah. What does she say? What does she say to her neighbors? Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You know, it's unnerving when someone seems to know what you're thinking before you say anything to them. In tooth, when I was writing this, I thought back to a particular evening in my life. It was in 2004. Dr. Eric Alexander, a well-known minister from Glasgow, Scotland, was speaking at Independent. I had known him for several years. He was, he's a dear man. Many of you know him and remember his preaching. He was a dear, dear friend to Independent, a dear friend of mine. We were leaving the church one evening after the service. We were by ourselves. No one was around. Eric said something to me that shook me to the core of my being. He gave me some advice and he was very specific about that advice. Now, he did not know that it addressed something that I was considering. No one knew about it. I hadn't told a soul, not my wife, not my children, not anyone. But it was as if Eric knew. But he couldn't know. Only God knew. Because I had spoken to no one but God about this. And I stopped. I mean, it just jerked me. I stopped. And I stopped Eric. And I said, Eric, 
Why did you just say what you did? He said, no reason. I was just thinking about you and your ministry. So I confided in him what I'd been thinking. I'd confided in him what this, this had been the subject of my prayers. Months later, when I did act against the counsel that he had given, he wrote me a note and he said, when I heard what you were planning, if it had not been for our conversation, if you had not explained, I would have boarded a plane to come see you immediately. But now I know that you're convinced that what you're doing is the Lord's will. Folks, it's unnerving to talk to someone and they know what's in your heart and they know what's in your mind. Again, remember the woman at the well in Samaria? Jesus had told her, he said, go call your husband. And she said, I have no husband. I love Jesus rising. You got that right. You have been married five times. But the man you're with now, he's not your husband. That's Jesus. That's who we talk to. So Nicodemus, you want to have a conversation with someone that knows all about you? Every word Jesus said to Nicodemus was based on what Jesus knew about him. And Jesus knew Nicodemus in the very core of Nicodemus' being. The next time you're speaking with the Father, remember, he knows everything that you're not saying. He knows every lie, every misrepresentation, the adulterous thoughts, the false words of empty flattery, this very hour as we worshiped. He has known our insincerity. And he's known our sincerity. So to understand why Jesus said what he did to Nicodemus, you must know, as Jesus did, who this man was. First we're told his name was Nicodemus. That's not a Jewish name. It was a Greek name. Members of the educated and upper class in Israel would give their children two names. They would give them a noble Jewish name. They would give them a noble Greek name. When they traveled outside of Israel for education and business, they would use their Greek name. Evidently, Nicodemus had chosen to use his Greek name even in Israel. This probably denoted that he spent a lot of time traveling throughout the Mediterranean world. Before his name is given, John tells us he was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were a religious and political party, an elite party. Most of them were wealthy. They were known for their piety, for their moral code. John also identifies him as a leader, a ruler of the Jews. This means that he was a group of 71 men who ruled Israel. They were called the Sanhedrin. Even their dress, if you would have looked at Nicodemus and asked somebody in the street, who is that guy? They could have said, well, I'm, I'm not sure, but he's a Pharisee. Their dress was very specific. 
He came to Jesus by night. He did not want to be noticed by anyone from the world or from his world. Jesus was already considered, because of what had happened in the temple, Jesus was already considered as an outlier in their world after the crucifixion. We're told that Joseph and Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus. In that passage, the end of John, Joseph of Arimathea is actually called a secret disciple. In that same passage, it names Nicodemus and said, remember, he's the one who came to Jesus by night. It was John's way of saying that Nicodemus was also a secret follower. But not at this point in chapter 3. He's just asking questions. Now let's get down to the conversation. Nicodemus shows his respect for Jesus by calling him Rabbi. Now we know this is being said by one of the most prominent social and economic icons in Israel. This is a powerful man. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Not, Nicodemus actually compliments Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? It's like, it, it's like Jesus did not compliment. Mean, it's like Nicodemus did not compliment Jesus. It's like Jesus didn't even hear what he said. He says, He said, amen and amen. Verily, verily, that means truly, truly, that means I like to translate it. This is certain. This is certain. We sang it at the end of the glory of this morning. Amen and an amen. What were we saying? This is certain. This is certain. And saying it twice. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is certain. What's certain? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now to Nicodemus, that just came out of left, left field. The Greek there, born again, can be translated also born from above. Either translation is powerfully accurate. What did Jesus say? Why did Jesus say this to Nicodemus? Nicodemus had spent his life trying to bring an inward transformation to his life. And he did it by an outward reformation. Outwardly, he was the picture of religious morality. This man thought he would be saved by his outward devotion to God. This man thought he was being saved by his own works. He was being saved by the law. Look at Matthew 23, 25 through 28 in your Bibles or on your scripture sheet. Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, and this is what Jesus says about them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate so that the outside may be clean. You've got it backwards. You don't start on the outside, you start on the inside. And then he says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. So you also appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, Jesus knew this about Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee who dressed, looked, and spoke like a Pharisee. A Pharisee was always a paragon of outward righteousness and actions, but it was all on the outside. Now, Nicodemus quickly responds by showing his ignorance. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? This is why I prefer the translation born again as opposed to born from above. Because that's the way Nicodemus understood it. Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? And what does Jesus say? He repeats, amen and amen. This is true. This is true. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, there are at least three different ways of interpreting those words. I'm only going to tell you the right one. I don't think he's speaking there about baptism when he speaks when he mentions water. I think it's quite simple. When a mother is about to give birth, what does she tell her husband? My water's broken. The embryonic fluid is broken. What Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, you must be born physically. You must be born of water. But you must also be born spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit. You were born once, Nicodemus, from your mother's womb. Now you must be born by the Holy Spirit. You must be transformed inwardly. It's hard for us to grasp, even as we're studying and thinking through this and trying to understand it. It's almost impossible to grasp how huge this was to Nicodemus. I mean, this man was a paragon of virtue. And in one, this is what Leon Morris says. Leon Morris was a great New Testament scholar in the last half of the 20th century. Wonderful man. He says this, in one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. Nicodemus, on your own initiative, you've come to speak with Jesus. Are you sure you want to have a conversation with this man? Because he knows all about you. He knows that it's just all outward that you need an inward transformation. Jesus has told this man who had spent his entire life trying to be saved, trying to transform his life by outward reformation instead of inward transformation by the Holy Spirit. Now, switch gears. John 3 is known as the greatest chapter in the Gospels on regeneration, on being born again. But we often miss, I'm so glad that to have this opportunity because I saw it anew, but we often miss what Jesus says about the cross in this chapter, what he says about justification, regeneration, being born again, it gives us eyesight to see the kingdom of God. It gives us eyesight 
to see the love of God. What we have, what we've been blinded to that which we've been blinded. To see the holiness of God. To see that we are indeed sinners. To feel the weight of our sin and feel the weight of God's wrath. Regeneration does all of that. It's an inward transformation of heart. But do you know what it does? It's an inward transformation of heart that takes us straight to the cross. And that's where Jesus stakes Nicodemus. Don't miss this. It's no small thing in this passage. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I think this is the first time in Jesus' ministry. Remember, it's still early in his ministry. I think it's the first time that he mentions the cross. And he takes Nicodemus there by going to a strange event in Israel's history. Certainly Nicodemus would have known all about this. From Numbers 21, let's quickly review it. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. So that many people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So that everyone is, so that when everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Is that not a powerful, you know the end of the story. The Israelites in that day didn't. Is that not a powerful prophecy about the cross? God had brought Israel out of the, out of slavery in Egypt. He had saved them from the pursuing Egyptian army. He had guided them through the wilderness with a cloud during the day and a fire at night. He had provided water in the wilderness. He had provided manna and quail. And yet, they started complaining. They complained against Moses. They complained against God. This food out here is terrible. We ate better than this back in Egypt. My father, I can't tell you how many hundreds of times he said to me, John, when I was complaining, when I was whining, John, you keep complaining, you keep whining, I'm going to give you something to complain about. Well, that's exactly what God did. God, my dad got that from this story. He sent a plague. Just like he'd send a plague on the Egyptians, he sent it on his own people. A plague of serpents, poisonous serpents. People were killed. And the people came to Moses. Oh, whoa, we have made a mistake, Moses. Pray to God. Pray for us. And then God gave Moses a command that really seemed strange. He said, Moses, 
Make a serpent out of bronze, a model serpent. Put it on a pole. Set it up in the middle of the camp. Everyone looks at, at it. They'll be healed. Jesus says to Nicodemus that evening, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I must be lifted up in a similar way. Whoever looks will be saved. Now think about it. The serpent on the pole was just a symbol. It was a piece of metal molded to look like a snake. It took no actions. It suffered no ill. It was only an image. It was only a likeness. When people gazed upon that image, God healed them. However, Jesus on the cross is not a symbol. The symbol of the snake on the pole took nothing upon itself. Jesus takes our sin. He takes our guilt and he takes the very wrath of God on himself what am I saying to you in this chapter understand this when I say what's the third chapter of John about you say John 3:16. what's the next thing you say it's about regeneration if I'd ask you before you came in here well does it say anything about the cross most of us would have said I'm not sure don't know Well, Jesus here covers the entire scope of man's salvation. All of us have two problems in our sin. We have a legal problem. We can't stand in God's courtroom and possibly be innocent by our own works. And then we have a being problem. Our hearts are dead to God. Our hearts are dead to feeling the weight of our sin and feeling the weight of the wrath of God, of seeing his kingdom. Many of us have walked through much of our lives thinking the idea of the cross is just ridiculous. And then everything changed. We saw the cross and became precious to us. We're going to sing about that in a moment. It became precious to us, something we loved. What happened? We were transformed inwardly so that we had a different eyesight. We had different ears. I don't like liver. I hate liver. Cannot stand it. Ugh. I'm not sure anyone who loves litter, liver can be saved. I mean, it's just awful. It's terrible. Well, if, if, if I went out to eat, and Terry and I were sitting there, and I said, Terry, I suddenly have a desire, a love for liver. Terry would look at me and say, what's happened to you? I mean, it's not that you don't like it. It's you hate it. You don't want anything to do with it. And yet you're sitting here. I would know something had happened to my taste buds. Well, when we go from not caring a tinker's about Jesus to loving him and saying, I'll die for him. Something has been transformed on the inside. That's what regeneration does. But Jesus then says, Nicodemus, you have a being problem. 
It's not just about standing in my courtroom. And believe me, Nicodemus, you can't stand there in all your righteousness. But you've got another problem. You've got a being problem. You've got a heart that is not drawn to God, not drawn to his word as it really is. Nicodemus, you're trying to bring about an inward transformation with your meticulous religious obedience. It does not have the power to change you in the very core of your being. You need to be changed by the Holy Spirit. So you have the message of regeneration and you have the message of justification. Jesus spoke of regeneration, but he didn't stop there. He told Nicodemus the rest of the story. Being born again does not take care of your legal problem. Being born again does not remove his sin. Nicodemus, the son of man, will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. And when you are born again, you will have a place to go. I have come to take your sin. I've come to stand in God's courtroom with your sin, taking your guilt, taking your punishment. And that's what the rebirth always does. Always. If you've been born again, you can't stay away from the cross. You can't stay away from Jesus. It will always take you to the cross. That's what the message of this passage. The two are inseparable. Regeneration, justification, they're inseparable. Have you been born again? If so, I tell you what happened next after you were born again. You went to the cross to find redemption. It's a rebirth that brings us to this table. And with that, we're going to sing a hymn written by Charles Wesley. It's called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood. We're only going to sing stanzas one three and four. Stanzas one and three speak about justification. Stanza four talks about regeneration. And that's how we'll come to the table. Let's stand.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.